0: Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your hosts, Chris Jennings and Dr. Mike Brazier.
1: We are back with another episode, and we thank you for joining us here. In studio with me, I have my co-host, Chris Jennings. Chris, how are you? Doing well, doing well. It's actually been quite a while since the two of us have sat down for it an has, episode. Yeah. So I don't we, know. We we may, we'll see been. if we can figure this out. It's, it's, uh, we, we may lose ourselves here as we go through this. But <laughs> joining us on the phone again is uh, uh, a guest that we had on a few episodes ago, Kevin Cry, Waterfowl Program Leader for Texas Parks and Wildlife Department. Kevin, thanks for taking the time to join us again.
2: Absolutely. It's uh, my pleasure.
1: We had you on uh, a recent episode. It was actually episode 59. And the focus of that episode was just to cover the results from the Texas Midwinter Waterfowl Survey. That episode ended up going about 50 minutes. You know, Texas is a big state, has a lot of eco-regions that we covered where where you do your surveys. And we really didn't have a chance on that episode to get into a bigger picture issue that I know you and other hunters and constituents in your state have been talking about and have been seeing, and that is this issue of... Longer-term trends in uh, sort of some changes, you might say, in the distribution and abundance of of birds across your state, across all these different ecoregions where you conduct the surveys. And so I know that's a really interesting topic. I, you and I have talked about it a number of times, and, of course, the work that we did on the Gulf Coast uh, whenever I was with the Gulf Coast Joint Venture feeds that discussion a little uh, with respect to what we, what we see and what we've documented and habitat changes. And we thought it would be a great idea, and I know you were interested in this as well, getting you back on to talk about that in more detail, and that's what we're here for. Excellent. I think we will start out by emphasizing to folks, if they did not listen to Episode 59, I strongly encourage them to do that. There's a lot of information in there uh, about the surveys, how they're conducted, when they're conducted. And I, I will say here, you conduct uh, state of Texas, unlike some of the other neighboring states, uh, conducts the their winter survey only once and that just relates to how big that state is and the effort required to do a survey over such a large area so you do it only once and that's in early January Uh, but nevertheless from that snapshot in time when you when you build that up over about you know 20 22 years you start to get a picture of some things that are that are happening there Uh, so there's a lot of good information in episode 59 go back and listen to that but I do want us to start off here Kevin with you giving us a, a refresher on the different ecoregions in the state where you conduct the surveys and and as you go as you go through that through those talk a bit about the 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 type of habitats that are important to waterfowl within within in those
2: ecoregions yeah absolutely um i guess we'll just start out um go north to south um starting the geography actually where i live and that's the uh, what we call the texas Panhandle. Um, uh, also known as the High Plains ecoregion. Uh, this is basically historically shoregrass prairie that is dominated by a wetland feature called Plias. Um, very um, dynamic, rainwater dependent, um, natural basins uh, to the tune of somewhere around 25,000 of these basins exist in the High Plains. Um, and so, yeah, that's uh, we have kind of a unique survey up here um, design such that we can capture that, those features uh, a little bit differently than we do some of the other areas. And uh, <clears throat> so, yeah, it's any given year. It's uh, either completely dry uh, and or frozen when we fly that survey. And so when we talked about last time, you can see some real dynamics in regard to dug numbers And this past year, it happened to be one of those years with combinations of, of, uh, quite a few basins holding water and we weren't frozen. And so obviously, that correlated into a very high duck and goose count for uh, the high plank region. Uh, moving south and a little bit uh, east uh, is what we call the rolling plains. Uh, this is an area of basically uh, from the west, you were talking San Angelo, Abilene, going north up towards Wichita Falls, all the way to the Red River, uh, over to just about Dallas. Um, and uh, this area is, um, you know, like it says, it's rolling plains. It's pretty rugged in areas, uh, but it's dotted uh, with tens, if not hundreds of thousands, of small uh, stop ponds uh, that waterfowl have found uh, quite appealing to them uh, in the last few decades.
1: I want to ask you a question here on the rolling plains. I've never, I think I mentioned this on the previous episode, I've never been through that. Part of the state, or if I have, it was very briefly, are there any natural wetland features uh, within the Rolling Plains? Uh, I suspect there are some, but what are the natural wetlands uh,
2: that you would have there? Um, yeah, there's not many. Uh, this is, like I said, it's a very, a um, uh, lot, of, lot of topography um, in that landscape. Um, you know, the, the natural features are the creeks and rivers uh, that, that dissect that pretty pretty regularly, uh, across that entire landscape, but there is one uh, island, if you will, uh, of natural basins that we call Winchester Lakes. It's just north of Abilene and, and uh, Knox and Haskell counties. Um, it's basically a chain of actual Playa wetlands uh, off the Caprock. Um, there's about, oh ten 10 to 15 of these basins, um, you know, much like Playa basins um, in the High Plains. Some of them are functioning a little better than others. Uh, when I say that, you know, some hold water better than others, and uh, this area actually is, even though it's small, it is uh, surrounded in agriculture, um, a really important agriculture because it's kind of a, one of our last uh, you known peanut growing areas, and uh, those are the pe- those people who've been in that area are familiar with it are quite hot, would <laughs> know this quite well that it is an extremely important area for uh, wintering geese, uh, some of our probably one of the single largest concentrations of white fronts uh anywhere in north america in winter um we don't rival the numbers of birds that are in arkansas but these birds are spread out you know all over you know the, the mav In this one particular spot it's uh they're all concentrated and unfortunately it seems like every year we fly over there they're all on one wetland each time you know we're talking in the tune of you know on a single body you know, a fifty, 60 acre pond or playa, uh, we're talking 60, 70, 80, 90,000 white fronts in one spot. <coughs> uh, so all there enjoying those peanuts uh, that we all know ducks and geese really enjoy. So other than that, those are the really only natural uh, basins for natural features out there at all. And so, yeah, and then moving uh, further east, um, we get into what we call the oak woods and blackland prairie. Um, very similar to the Rolling Plains, obviously, we're talking about a rainfall gradient uh, change as you move east, so, uh, you know, we, we do change vegetation, we do get high rainfall, so we are getting into, uh, uh, you know, more wooded areas and, and uh, definitely higher densities of stockpile. Uh, as we move into this region, we start getting into quite a few reservoirs, uh, even some floodplain rivers, uh, upper, upper reaches of the Trinity uh, upper reaches of um, a good portion of the Trinity, uh, you know, um, uh, sulfur, you know, all of our big uh, floodplain rivers um, kind of originate in this area, and so there is a, a significant number of natural features as well as a lot of the man-made features that we talked about in the rolling, in the rolling plains, it just a uh, much much more of them.
1: I was flying from Lafayette, Louisiana into Dallas one time, and I think maybe I had a connection into Dallas or something. But it was – it's a short flight, but for whatever reason, um, as I – when I got on the plane, um, I, I dozed off for maybe 20, 30 minutes or something of that nature, and it was late in the afternoon, and I woke up, and I had a window seat. And I looked out, the sun was setting in the west, and so I was looking out towards the west, and the sun was uh, glistening off of all these water bodies and I had dozed off and whenever I woke up and saw all of that i was I was literally disoriented because i thought I thought we had taken the wrong turn or I thought maybe we were off course. I thought maybe I had gotten on the wrong flight. I thought we were in the prairie pothole region literally it took me about thirty seconds to to gather in my mind what I was actually seeing and it was the stock pond that you're talking about and it was just the 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 way the sun it was the sun was setting and just glistening off of those those stock ponds I'm obviously it would have been a wet year but I was astonished at the at the density of of stock ponds that's really when it hit home to me because I'd heard you talk about stock ponds in in this part of the state but uh anyway that's a little neat story that I have personal anecdote of the significance of those stock ponds there so I just wanted to share that
2: yeah, it's, it is. I mean, I've seen that, um, you know, in survey aircraft. I love flying the evenings because, like you said, they'll, you can get those those late evening pictures. But much like you said, um, I've seen that in commercial aircraft, too. I've even taken some pictures of it. Um, and I know you have to get some kind of count software, but, um, you know, literally tens of thousands in a single view outside your window. Um, recent research that we're doing, current research that we're doing um, with Texas Tech University on those features, uh, basically, it's us you know we're looking at anywhere from seven to nine stock ponds per square mile in some of that landscape, uh, and so it's incredible densities, uh, incredible numbers. Uh, upwards, you know, between the rolling plains and oaks and prairies, you know, upwards of a million of these ponds exist, and uh, so yeah, it's it's uh, it's pretty neat, and uh, I imagine we'll talk about it more in a minute and how they're impacting. Uh, bird distribution in, in Texas. And, and honestly, I would say far beyond the, the bounds of Texas, they very impacting ducks. So, um, yeah, and then uh, moving even further east uh, is what we have what we call our Piney Woods, a small little strip, uh, self explanatory, deep East Texas um, with uh, real low densities of ducks. Uh, there's just not a lot out there for ducks uh, in regards. You know, there's no uh, it's not near as dynamic you're dealing with a lot more consistent much higher rainfall area uh the water bodies that are out there uh, just aren't as productive and uh and uh so yeah that's um, as we go east uh you know a good year we're talking 100,000 ducks in that landscape <clears throat> so uh and then uh south from there is the same uh Gulf coast um we call I believe we call it the uh, coastal prairies and marshes uh in our survey and um yeah uh, the gulf coast is um uh incredibly important uh, to texas and north america Um, it's kind of unique um from a management perspective as a state biologist because you have ducks don't fly south for the fun of it and ducks don't go to places just because they go to different kinds of ducks use different habitats differently and so when you have stacked right on top of each other very very closely, you have you go from uh, the bay systems to the estuaries to the marsh, jump up into um, you know the, the coastal prairie, which is you know dominated well by uh, the rice fields in that country, and you have those stacked on top of each other. Uh, it's kind of interesting because different species of ducks use those habitats quite differently, and and uh, and it, and it, it really kind of challenges <laughs> our state uh, waterfowl biologists and and our decisions on, you know, season dates and things like that, because we do have such a diversity of habitats stacked on top of each other with a diverse group of birds using those habitats quite differently. And, uh, so yeah, it's, um, the Gulf coast is, is obviously vast and impacts so many things. You know, when you start thinking about species like redheads and pintails and what historically was there in regard to, arctic geese, white fernet geese, and snow geese. Um, and even small Canada geese used to be very abundant on the Texas coast. And we pretty much call those our unicorns now. Uh, our surveys don't detect any. We don't, we don't detect any Canada geese on the Texas coast anymore, even though there's a few still there. But, um, so, yeah, that's uh, – and then going um, to the to the west from there is what we call our South Texas brush country. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's an area, you know, South of San Antonio – uh, all the way to the Mexican border and, and the Rio Grande River. And um, again, very much like the Rolling Plains, it's uh, lower rainfall, but um, there are uh, a fair amount, not quite the densities we're talking about in the Rolling Plains or Oaks, Oaks and Prairie, but there are good numbers of man-made ponds in that landscape. Um, most, almost uh, every, almost all of them were built, uh, you know, with kind of recreation type style in mind. So they're, they're larger in size. Um, and they definitely, um, when it's wet out there, um, it has great impact on bird numbers uh, to the to the south and east uh, in the Gulf Coast region. Um, we definitely see areas where um, there's years where that that, that region has more dabbling ducks in the Gulf Coast. So it, it also it has great importance.
1: When you say the the wetlands out there, these ponds out there, were constructed more from a recreational standpoint. What what are
2: you talking about there? Yeah, uh, mostly fish. I mean, we're talking about huge, huge uh, ranches, you know, that are there for you know deer hunting and quail hunting and and those type of things. And everybody that buys a piece of property, and that's that's the exact same reason why there's so many ponds, um, rolling plains, oaks and prairies. Um, everybody that buys a piece of property. We're all aware that land size, uh, we call it fragmentation, uh, is getting smaller and smaller. And the second somebody buys a piece of property, the very first thing they want is a water feature. It's not already there, and so um, yeah, they, they like water features. They like putting their, their house on a hill above a lake and and uh, be able to go out and catch bass and things like that. And in all these cases, when I talk to people about these ponds and their role, it's all accidental. You know, it was never intentional in regards for you know something to do with largely even wildlife. Um, and uh, so th- these birds have found these, uh, these man-made features uh, kind of incidental to, you know, everything else that's going on around them. So <clears throat> it's uh, kind of an interesting story for sure.
1: Yeah, if you can't live on the coast, you build uh, you build
2: a water structure near you. It may not be the coast, but it's still water. Yeah, I mean, especially, uh, you know, probably one of the biggest driving factors in that is, is the fact that it's all freshwater too, right? Uh, we're not talking, you know, when the Gulf Coast gets dry... You know, those birds are really the ones—the real limiting factors—is finding fresh water, and uh, whether it be you know in the bays and estuaries, or even inland in the prairies. And so, when all that's dry, you know, these birds aren't going to overfly. You know, you know, just forty miles north of them, sixty miles north of them, in some cases, we are not going to overfly tens of thousands, if not millions, plus times uh, with fresh water in them. So,
1: okay, so I think there's one more eco
2: region. Oh yeah, yeah, there's one little tiny one. Um, we call it the. Uh, uh, the coastal sand plain, um, and it's uh, it's a different habitat uh, in deep, deep south Texas along the Gulf Coast, uh, really kind of the Laguna Madre area of the very, very tip of Texas. It's very, very small, uh, but it is uh, quite a bit different than the rest of the Gulf Coast. So we kind of made a separate uh, uh, strata, uh, eco-region out of it, uh, because you know, each one of these strata, we want them to be, you know, consistent across, you know, north, south, east, west so that birds are, you know, distributed and and, and distribute our transects uh, equitably and fairly across the landscape so we get a good the indication of what's
1: going on in that landscape yeah and those that area um, I am familiar with that area well, I'm familiar with the entire coast of Texas but that the coastal sand plain there correct me if I'm wrong it actually does have a mix of created wetlands uh, stock ponds for ranching but there are also some natural depressional wetlands there closer to the co- well maybe actually even uh, inland quite away from the coast that they are heavily rainfall dependent because it's such a sandy substrate uh, but in years of of abundant rain, let's say a tropical storm. I know we've seen this, and it's been borne out in some of the analyses the Gulf Coast Joint Venture did. I mean, it can be there can be sixty thousand acres of of water uh, down there across all these little stock ponds or, that, or other natural wetlands. Is that region? Is that just south of Corpus, like
3: Baffin Bay area? Is that basically where yes. that is? Okay, I just I was just trying to put it into reference.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's it's like I said, it's the very tip of Texas, uh, and like Mike said, it's real sandy soils. Like I said, coastal sand plain, which is dotted uh, with depressional natural wetlands uh, across that landscape. Again, we're talking about big, big ranch country. Um, You know, a couple of, of you know, pretty much two or three people, two or three different ranches own uh, pretty much that entire area. And uh, yeah, those 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 depressions can be quite important to waterfowl uh, when wet. Okay, that uh, that
1: covers an overview of the different ecoregions where the surveys are. And as you're talking about this. Kevin, it – I mean it's it just – the scale of I, I guess the additional wetlands that have been put on the landscape is pretty phenomenal. Uh, and when you look across the state and you tell me if this is right, I don't actually have the data. I, I, we have some data on sort of historical wetland change along the Gulf Coast, but I don't know what all kind of wetland data, historical wetland data is available from the rest of the state. But as you have kind of talked about, there may not have been a great number of, uh, of other – natural wetlands that existed prior to uh, you know, settlement. And so what we've seen is a loss of natural wetlands on the Gulf Coast, and we've seen a substantial increase in the number of wetlands and let's just say water bodies throughout uh, these other parts of the state that we've talked about. So, I mean, are we, if we were to go back a hundred years, do, are we looking at completely different trajectories in the amount of water and wetland on the landscape across these eco-regions where on the Gulf Coast it's going down and these other areas it's going up?
2: Uh, yeah, without question. Um, you can, there's there's a, even some of the, you know, aerial imagery that really goes back so far, but even looking at as far back as we can go, it's, it's dramatic how much it's changed. Um, one of the sad ironies is, the three priority areas identified by um, one of the original North American waterfront management plans, uh, is the high plains, playas, Gulf coast prairies and marshes, and then West Gulf coastal plain, which is, you know, far East Texas. And all three of those regions were, um, were, and for the most part still are, you know, kind of a natural wetland based, uh, geography, you know, obviously playas in the high plains, East Texas, you know, that was bottomland hardwood split plain wetlands, um, that, uh, you know, we all know that story. Um, either they've been uh, high graded, cleared, um, drained, uh, put a reservoir on top of, you know, our our, our historic bottomland hardwoods that remain, they just a tiny fraction of what used to be there. And um, and so, yeah, that landscape's changed dramatically. And then, obviously, uh, we know all the challenges that's going on in the Gulf Coast. And between all three of those areas, middle of Texas, there would have been almost there would have been very 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 little water on the, on the surface uh, as you as you come off the cap rock and go south and east uh, all you would have had was braided rivers and streams, uh, not necessarily floodplain type streams and so there would have been shy of the one little Winchester uh, chain of wetland Winchester lakes in not Haskell County you know hundred two hundred years ago there would have been no water on the surface other than rivers.
1: when you say cap rock, you're talking about that. Uh, what is it? Well, I, I'm not going to be able to put it into, into words that are accurate. So you tell me. I know where it is that you're talking about, but explain what you mean when you say Cap Rock.
2: And so when I when I said earlier the Yano Estacado, that's the flat top pan that exists in the high plains of the Panhandle of Texas. As you go east, uh, you fall off what we call the Cap Rock, and that is a real, real rugged canyon. Uh, uh, immediately, like it falls off the plate and. Yeah, that's where you have Powder Canyon. Uh, that's where you have Caprock Canyon. Um, and so, yeah, it's like a flat. Uh, historically, that used to be the beach, you know, when, you know, many, 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 many years ago, that's where the ocean uh, shore was. And uh, so anyway, yeah, that's the Caprock as you fall off um, and go out to
0: what we call the rolling plane. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com.
1: Kevin, I know you've given this presentation, this talk a number of times, and so now we've introduced the ecoregions and the important waterfowl habitats within each of those uh, how do you want to? How do you want to proceed at this point? You want to start talking about uh, trends that we've seen in any particular region, or there are some overall
2: bigger picture th-
1: places where you would like to start.
2: Well, yeah, I think I'd probably, you know, just you know, we're talking uh, about you know, twenty-three, twenty-four years of survey data, and so you know, going back to what we were seeing in the first couple of years, um, and what we would consider quote-unquote normal um but distributionally what we saw in those early days and then kind of what we're seeing now and how that potentially has changed uh in any given year. Um and probably most notably, you know, we talk about the Gulf Coast and its importance on on the landscape. And yeah, we get in the airplanes, we go up there in the early days, we certainly got up there and counted uh more ducks and geese along the Gulf Coast than we did anywhere else. Um, The lion's share, that's where about 50% of our hunters live, and that's where about 50% of our harvest takes place. And, um, you know, any given year, we're talking, you know, 50, 60% of the ducks and geese were there uh, for the entire state. And that was what we kind of expected. And then as we're sampling this landscape, you know, things like the plies would pop up every now and then. Again, purely dependent on conditions and rain and, and ice. Um, but you know, everything was just kind of steady and right behind the Gulf Coast was that ecoregion of Oaks and Prairies, you know, Dallas, Waco, uh, Austin, that country, um, that, uh, had, um, uh, for sure it was always our best Mallard area, which I a couple of years with the high plains. It always had real consistent pond numbers, um, it was kind of higher rainfall. So those ponds weren't, you know, they, they didn't dry up on you. They were always there. And, uh, yeah, we saw uh, huge numbers, you know, uh, anywhere from 6, 900,000 uh, ducks uh, using that landscape to some years over a million, <clears throat> you know, compared to early days, you know, 1.7, you know, 2 million ducks uh, along the Texas Gulf Coast. And uh, so um, we kind of uh, kept going along there. And what really seemed to be the, uh, the change was the drought of record. Uh, this is when it really just kind of clicked in, it was like, and there's something going on. Um, and that was like 2010, 2011. Uh, we saw uh, the Gulf Coast was uh, beyond dry. Essentially, uh, so the only water available to a duck was largely salt water uh, on that landscape. And and so quite naturally, like I mentioned earlier, um, when we flew that survey, we, we detected that real quickly. Uh, and those interior ecoregions were holding more ducks uh, for the first time at least in our survey and probably for a very very long time in human history the very first time that there weren't more ducks on the texas coast than what were in say the oaks and prairies and so that was one of those years where the oaks and prairies uh, was our leading duck ecoregion. region uh, and it was kind of like an eye-opener but it made sense because there was no fresh water along the gulf coast and so we kind of you know mark that off as you know that's why that happened kevin i never realized
1: that i've looked at these graphs that you produce every year for about 10 12 years and and i re- was was uh working for the gulf Coast joint venture during that drought of record uh, 10 11 12 the, the effects went on into 12 13 and 14 certainly for the rice industry and i and,
2: feel like we're still feeling it
1: <laughs> and i never noticed that with respect to these these graphs and how after 2010, you know, up from – just as you described, that seems like a turning point for, for coastal Texas where some of those bird abundances, species abundances, nearly flatlined. And you saw a, a concurrent increase in some of those other areas, the ocean prairies being a, a great example for some of these species. And you're right. Some of the species have just not, uh, you know, to say it like this, as come back. To the coast since that uh, since that drought. Now, one of the things that happened, I don't know if we we'll get into this at some point, but the. What they did as a result of that drought, one of the things that it caused was curtailment of irrigation water for rice on the Texas mid coast, and that caused in one year the elimination of I believe believe it was somewhere in the neighborhood of fifty or fifty five thousand acres of planted rice. So there was about three or four years where you had a reduction in the amount of planted rice on the Texas mid coast of about fifty thousand acres. Uh, some of that production shifted into the East Coast or uh, shifted into what we call the Texas Near Plain there, the uh, southeastern Texas, but certainly not enough to make up for that full fifty thousand and fifty five thousand acres. And then, of course, the over—I think that curtailment lasted for maybe four years. I know it was at least three years, but I believe it was four. And and while some of that has come back, I think you're right. I need to look at the numbers closely to see, but I don't think all of that acreage has fully come back to the uh, to the mid coast. But I never really had picked up on that as being a a point in time when uh, when, when, things you know, really um, really noticeably changed there in terms of these
2: numbers. Yeah, so it was dramatic and, and kind of instant. And, you know, it took years for the Texas coast to kind of recover, uh, whether it be the natural, you know, marshes and, and basins to, to, like you said, the, the, the lack of irrigation water and the rice prairie. So um, any given year, we saw from that point on, kind of a a strange dynamic where it wasn't uh, always the Gulf Coast, number one. Some years it was. Some years the Gulf Coast still showed up. But what was interesting about that as you look specifically at that data, um, (laughs) especially uh, dabbling ducks. there's not a species of dabbling duck uh, on the Texas coast that is showing increasing trends for the last 24 years. Uh, So when we see the Gulf Coast jump up, and be the number one ecoregion for ducks in the state of Texas. it's largely driven by redheads you know if we get our, our stop, you know if we get our airplane over big graphs of scop and redheads you know that's when we'll see 1.72 million ducks left on the gulf coast again uh, but if you look across those graphs by species it's the dabbling ducks that are a real alarm to us um, and so when you correlate that to what our dabbling ducks using uh, obviously fresh water uh, and you begin to look on the landscape where we're seeing these birds show up uh, in our survey. Um, they're on these freshwater bays, They're on these stock ponds uh, in interior of Texas. Um, and, you know, any given year, oaks and prairies uh, exceed the Gulf Coast. Um, this past year, Gulf Coast was number one, but again, it was largely driven by uh, a big giant count of redheads, um, to the tune of in 2016 which was probably one of the weirdest years um <clears throat> where the, actually the two north and western um eco regions the high plains and the rolling uh rolling plains um had let me the here. rolling plains had 1.1 1. 1, 1. 1 million and the high plains had almost exactly one million bucks um, and the gulf coast um didn't even break a million and so um, and I wouldn't go into details of why that was. It was very, very wet in the north and west. And there was sheet water all over the rolling plains. Um, and so it's just one of those things that you begin to see. You begin to see in our distribution data. You begin to see in our research. You begin to see in our, our telemetry work. Um, these birds have wings for a reason. Uh, they're not taught to fly south and go to this wetland. They're not taught to go to the Gulf Coast. They go to where they know there's good habitat. And they don't have to go fly over it to know that. When they leave the prairie, they know when they take a direction, they're heading to a place for a reason. None of us will ever figure out why. Uh, it's one of the most amazing things we'll ever deal with in the waterfowl world is that, that, that ability of these birds to know where there's habitat. Um, you know, we kind of wrap our head around the idea of pressure and, and rain events and big, you know, big low pressure systems, and birds might be able to sense that from all the way off. But I've seen these types of things happen uh, artificially where you're putting on a pump. You know, there wasn't water there, you know, and then five hours later, it's covered in birds. So there's there's a communication and, and an, un, uh, an un, uh, unbelievable ability of a duck to know where to go. And these birds in the state of Texas um, have absolutely um, still love to go to the Gulf Coast. I mean, Gulf Coast, when things are right, the bays, like I said, stacked on top of each other, the bays, the marshes, and then the coastal prairie, Uh, when things are good down there, man, there's still a lot of ducks down there. Uh, Birds will go down there and take advantage of those conditions and those habitats. Um, But when, you know, conditions are poor down there or conditions are better elsewhere, that's where they're going to go. And, you know, uh, we see this over and over again in all kinds of different data streams where these birds are not only seeking um, these habitats, because one, they're providing things. We've done a lot of research on these habitats in the last oh, almost two decades, but for sure 15 years. Um, and the things that we're finding out um, are kind of amazing, but at the same time, it's not shocking. You know, birds that are in unbelievable condition, some of the best body condition we've ever been recorded on the on the wintering grounds. Uh, birds that are well-advanced in molt, well-advanced in peristad, Um, You know, they're going out to these these wetlands for a reason um for a number of different reasons and um and not only is there plenty of foods there for them uh, one of the things that's really important to remember is shy of the gulf coast and shy of the high plains where we have agricultural grains on the landscape in that one little tiny spot around Winchester lakes ducks that come to texas have to make a living in the water in which they swim you know rolling plains oaks and prairies there's no corn Available to them. There's no, you know, uh, Milo, those type of things uh, that you see further up the flyway don't exist. So, birds that come here have to swim around and make a living in the water that they're swimming in. And so, when you pull back the, the microscope and you're looking at, you know, uh, a county just outside Wichita Falls and there's 40,000 stock ponds, um, you know, it doesn't take an individual half acre pond to have a huge carrying capacity to take care of hundreds of thousands of ducks because they individually use these things in small groups and then they fly around the landscape uh, sampling all of them throughout the day and night. And and probably one of the major factors uh, that we're beginning to see is I think I talked about last time, is um, had a growing awareness by hunters and, and biologists. And we're seeing it in a lot of our data streams of a growing intolerance, I'm talking about ducks here and geese for some matter, the growing intolerance to human disturbance.
3: I was going to say that was going to be one of my questions that you mentioned earlier, it stuck out to me that you have 50% of your hunters in that coastal region. Um, and then looking at this data, I mean, that's one thing that we always talk about is pressure and, and birds, birds don't, don't tolerate that at all. You know, and I hear that all across. Every state I hear people talking about that from a biologist, even to hunters that, you know, it looks like with this much habitat on the landscape, especially in like the Oaks and Prairies region, you don't have that pressure in the number of people just chasing these birds around, man, those birds are going to find somewhere quiet to sit and and sounds like they have a food source as well. So uh,
2: that's very interesting. Yeah. Like I said, they're they're feeding on invertebrates, uh, seeds, uh, vegetative material in these ponds, um carrying capacity individually is very low uh you know it's all over the place but on average you know we deal with averages in our world Uh, on average it's it's much much lower than say a moist soil unit or a coastal marsh or obviously a rice field or uh you know any kind of a waste grain situation like corn and whatnot Uh, but there's so many of them and one of the really interesting things is as a state biologist I, i keep track uh for a number of different reasons of like new outfitters and new um, you know clubs and things like that and where they're popping up because it kind of gives you a story uh as well um, as just kind of wanting to know where everybody is. And there's a growing, an incredible, growing number of people beginning to take advantage of Dustiny uh in the oaks and berries and the rolling plains. Um any given you know those ponds are so variable they're so small they get down to a tenth of an acre all the way up to you know obviously 40 acres type thing and anything north of two two acres um you can traditionally traditionally duck hunt that you can go in there with a bag of decoys and shoot at a really really interesting mix of species and uh and people are starting to take advantage of that people that have deer leases and quail leases out in that landscape have been looking at these birds showing up on their ponds it's like well you know what i'm going to wake up and go throw out some decoys for me and my son. So you're getting these multi-use properties now. The people are taking advantage of it. You know, Mike, you and I sit in all kinds of rooms all over North America. And one of the dominant conversations is this R3 conversation about we need more recruit and retain more hunters. You know, you know, you talk to uh, me and Larry Reynolds, and we're like, where, where am I going to put more hunters? <laughs> there's not a hunter, there's not a, there's not a duck hunter out there that says there should be more hunters. So um, but in this case, as you mentioned, the Gold Coast is pretty tight. Our public lands are overrun, overrun, breaking records every single year of participation in harvest, every single year. And so when I look at the big picture of the state of Texas, this area actually serves uh, facilitation of new hunters and places for people to go hunting that wasn't there before. And people are starting to take advantage of it. The one big, big difference is – When the guns start shooting, which they're few and far between, it's a huge, huge landscape. When the guns start going off, they only have to fly a half mile to another pond and relax. As opposed to the Gulf Coast where guns start going off and they just get at 10,000 feet and don't know where to go. Because there's nowhere to land.
3: Yeah, that's interesting that we were talking about this. I know that um, the editor of the magazine, Matt Young, and I have spoke. For the last probably three or four years, as we look at this whole big picture and, and doing like through the migration alerts and the migration map and and talking to hunters everywhere, I mean you guys um I, I guess what we're hearing is that that northern Texas you know high plains it just continually comes up in conversation and and it's interesting to hear you say that because this year alone, I was probably invited to three or four different hunts out there in north texas like right along the oklahoma border Um, and these guys are just i mean they're having fantastic hunts out there and it's kind of been i'm not going to say a secret i mean i think most people know you know the hunting is pretty good out there but but it has it's kind of been a boom for um, people in that area especially so i find it interesting that that you bring this up it's awesome
1: kevin are you seeing uh, an increase in the number of hunters. I mean, can you tell from your license sales data where where the people are, uh, where the people are, where the purchasers of the license are, and are you seeing that ref- the, what you're describing in terms of a sort of a shift in bird numbers uh, within these regions? Is
2: that is that also showing up in your license sales? Um, that, that's difficult to get at, uh, but it is a data mining exercise that we have done in the past. Uh, we haven't updated it in um, a number of years, and it's something that's on my list. Uh, for the exact reasons that you're bringing it up, because it is so interesting. Uh, where are the people uh, beginning to hunt? It's it, it's not 100% accurate because all you can do is go by, uh, you know, where they live. Uh, not everybody hunts near where they live, right? Uh, but it it does give you kind of an interesting picture uh, in regard to um, what eco. I mean, we use the exact. We can we can break out those exact same eco regions that we have population estimates uh, and use those zip codes. Uh, and populate a uh, you know a hunter type number as well uh, but we know uh, as well you know we got <laughs> we live in a world of assumptions and you got to assume that where they buy the license is somewhat correlated to where they hunt and we know duck hunters like to travel so um, you got to be it's not 100% accurate but when, when we did this last I mean you're talking you know 50 something for 55% of the hunters on the Gulf Coast, 55% of the harvests It was somewhere in, I think, around 30, 35% in the roll oaks and prairies. Um, And then, like, for example, the rolling plains and high plains, um, 3% of the hunters, 3% of the harvest. Uh, 2% of the harvest, 2% of the hunters in the rolling plains. Um, And so um, I suspect if we were to redo that exercise, that has changed quite a bit. Um, One real cool thing that you can look at is uh, band recoveries and um you know one that I'm most familiar with apparently is uh uh the pintail band recovery a decadal comparison over time and uh, you, know, you go back to the seventies the the stop ponds oaks and prairies gulf co- or excuse me uh, rolling plains didn't show up, and you know you look at band recoveries from uh you know this past decade, and there's a big glob of pintail band recoveries coming from those those regions so um it's being you know, confirmed in many different data streams uh, that that's where they're going. And, and, you know, rightfully so. Um, It's neat, one, that people are getting the opportunity to go out and take advantage of it. Uh, And it's real cool because they they don't blow them away. Uh, They can be more consistent. Um, If you get access to the land, obviously, 100, almost 100% of everything we're talking about here is private land. Uh, You know, we really don't have public land in that landscape, um, shy of a few reservoirs. Uh, but I can tell you from our research and our surveys, uh, reservoirs are not that important to ducks, especially during daylight hours. Um, you know, these birds spread out across the landscape. Uh, many of them are used as a habitat at night. Um, but if you stand around almost any of these reservoirs in, the, in North Texas, Central Texas, uh, at sunrise and sunset, they're either coming or going.
3: I would imagine that, you know, with more ducks north, do you think that that growing number of hunters, I guess you could say, um, in some of these more northern regions is kind of a correlation as along with, I mean, like Dallas over the course of the last 15 years has grown exponentially uh, population wise, you know, and, and as that city continues to expand and move further north, uh, you know, is it you know, just sheer number of hunters? Um, but also, is it is it eating up any potential habitat to where those birds would maybe distribute to that area, used to distribute into that region or that area that are now just staying further north? Um, could that have, I don't know if you guys look at stuff like that, but it's just something that popped into my head.
2: Well, yeah, without question, you know, when you think about Texas, where, you know, our, our hunters come from urban environments. So, and the closer you are to those locations, uh, you know, obviously you're talking about uh, an increase in use. Um, and so one of the things kind of fueling uh, what I like to call the kind of outfitter explosion around North, North Texas, let's be honest here with uh, North Texas <laughs> to most people is Dallas. And so I'll go ahead and refer to that, but I still say Panhandle, <laughs> North Texas, but so Dallas area. Um, uh, yeah, so the ability to have clients to be able to come out and people to use and, and be within an hour, hour and a half drive of that Metroplex is extremely important. And, um, and there is, uh, some of the best ponds and pond densities are near or are, are within an hour, hour and a half of Dallas. And so it's kind of a cool correlation. Um, uh, yeah, the, the city of Dallas itself, the footprint of Dallas and Fort Worth is is on an extremely important ecosystem, the upper reaches of the Trinity river and some historically some of the coolest, um, you know, prairies and, and, uh, mixed hardwoods, uh, you know that we have in the state, and so yeah, its footprint definitely sitting on a, a cool historic place that kind of displays some things. But uh, there's you know that supply of hunters is definitely there, and obviously as is with uh, Houston and, and those type of scenarios. So
3: as I'm kind of looking at the at the data here, and you've got their peaks and valleys of you know the years of when the numbers go up and down on the coast and throughout the oaks and prairies region, brush country, rolling plains. And do you take that? You take this data and then correlate that with maybe the habitat to the north as far as Oklahoma, Kansas, you know, Nebraska, and look at how when those birds come out of the prairies, are they, you know, are there years where they're shifting in different directions based on the habitat north of you? Or is this, you know, you just look at it as basically like the Texas habitat? I ask this because, you know, I hear several, I always have several questions about, you know, are you seeing a shift to the west in migration? Are you seeing a shift to the east? And while well, it's all there's so many variables involved, and Mike and I have talked about this a thousand times, but do you take this information and kind of lay it on top of you know was Kansas super dry when the the rolling plains were a little bit more wet? You know, and and seeing that that correlation of the data, right?
2: Um, it's very difficult to kind of tease that out. Um, uh, the thing that really drives uh, visitation if you will uh to the state of texas is is uh, obviously cold weather to the north and then rainfall events so one of the one of the things that's always kind of cracks me up is, is uh especially as you go east um you begin to hear a bunch of duck hunters complain about too much water and so when the rivers flood uh and they may have that overbank flood event um again correlating back to the fact that our ducks have to make a living in the water in which they swim that's the event that brings ducks to the texas um, that is, you know, they'll come from all over the country, all over, you know, the South, uh, Midwest, to come take advantage of those flood events, to get back in that backwater. And, and same thing as you go West, you know, as those ponds swell, you know, oaks and prairies and rolling plains, you're obviously flooding up more terrestrial vegetation and providing more foods. And so that's a huge draw. Again, going back to that story of how ducks just know, uh, that's a huge, huge draw. Um, what's interesting about Oklahoma is this feature, goes well into Oklahoma and Kansas, these ponds. And um, as you go further north, they begin to use them quite differently. Because if you go north in Oklahoma and Kansas, those ponds are there, maybe not quite the density that we have, but they're in the middle of uh, corn and agricultural fields. Uh, and so, you know, they got these little one acre, half acre, two acre ponds dotting the landscape of, you know, the lower Great Plains of um, uh, kansas and, and uh, oklahoma uh, and it's they can they can actually feel feed from those ponds and so when you have that, that scenario of you know no no snow no ice and yet i can sit on this pond albeit um you know probably not very traditional um you know marsh or something like that i can go sit on this this man-made body of water and i can fly out the cornfields you know, cut cornfields um, for most of the winter, like they did this year, they're not going to come any further south than that. And when I, when I talk about our data, um, the one thing that I always kind of uh, try and point out to people is, is the big picture. Uh, since we started the data uh, survey back in the, the early, late 90s, um, the percentage of ducks counted in the Central Flyway that were counted in Texas has steadily increased. So, you know, that's kind of a data stream saying there's no big, you know, northward trend. They're still coming to the state of Texas. And then if you look across the entire data set of the amount of ducks we count in Texas, that trend is also increasing. So there's two different streams of data that are saying we're not as a whole, the state of Texas as a whole is not seeing ducks not coming to Texas. You know, kind of goes back to that story of we're our own worst You know, the birds, um, might not be making it to the Gulf Coast, but they're still within the boundaries of Texas. And so um, these conversations about shortstopping, um, you know, those those are two data points I point out. But with that being said, when we're talking about stock ponds and corn country, we're talking about corn and open water north of us, uh, there's two species of bird, the waterfowl, that are declining on a statewide scale. The rest are all increasing. Uh, and that's mallards and if you will, light geese, uh, or arctic geese for that matter, uh, white fronts and, and snow geese. Um, and that is, uh, can be almost directly correlated to a changing in behavior of, of mallards and snow geese to where their mallards are becoming more and more like snow geese every single day. You know, they'll go sit on 60 feet of water on a power plant lake, you know, by, you know, 60, 50,000 of them and be as happy as possibly can be as long as they can fly to a cornfield, you know, somewhere in central Kansas. Uh, and be happy. Same thing with snow geese. You know, snow geese will sit on 60 feet of water and be happy now, or they'll go sit on a half acre pond, you know, two and 3000 of them and be very, very organized and fly out to these fields every single day. Um, and it's just more energy, more, more carbs for them. Um, and so until we see that old, you know, that, that freeze line, get all the way to Oklahoma, the red river, if you will, you know, our mallard numbers, uh, statewide continue to decline. Um, goose numbers continue to decline. Kansas counted a million of snow geese in Kansas again this winter. Um, We couldn't even touch that. Uh, That's that's equivalent to what we were counting near in the heyday on the Texas coast. And so when you look at the rest of the species, though, you know, all the remaining dabbling ducks and diving ducks, the state of Texas is, um, you know, continuing to see increasing trends. Um, But it's just where within the boundaries of the state of Texas are those birds falling out which is the story um and i've said this uh, many times to a lot of different people but the reality is when you look at central texas oaks and prairies rolling plains um and to some extent even the brush country you're talking about on a north american continental scale probably the largest waterfowl refuge in the entire continent for birds to go do their thing not be harassed complete their annual cycle and return to the breeding ground um, it's extremely, extremely important uh, on a continental scale. Uh, and that's kind of the role we're playing right
1: now. Kevin, I want to I sort of couch one of the earlier comments you made about how the number of birds in Texas is is kind of on the, on the upswing. And you kind of use that as a way to say the birds are still coming to our state. So the uh, folks outside the state of Texas will say, but yeah, look at. Look at how much latitude is covered by the state of Texas. You know, when you go up to Dallas, you're you're over into Arkansas. Like if you're moving from the coast up to uh, you know moving north, that's the equivalent of the entire state of Louisiana, north to south, and even in Arkansas. And then if you throw in the Panhandle, you're talking about on up almost uh, equal to the northern border of of Arkansas. Just we kind of have to throw that in there. Texas covers a lot of uh, a lot of ground east to west, north and south, and you are seeing some of those latitudinal shifts. Uh, due to multiple factors that's one of the things that makes texas and the data sets that you have so valuable from piecing together this puzzle is because you have really good data on what the habitat is doing and you also have good data on where your hunters are Uh, you also have good data of course as we all do on on the winter or on weather and climate so uh, it's it's it provides a really unique opportunity to answer uh, or to to try to tease apart some of these factors.
2: Right. Yeah, it's um it's kind of overwhelming at times. <laughs>
1: Kevin, this is probably a good place for us to wrap up. We still have a few other topics that I know we want to talk with you about, and uh, we want to try to avoid having like a two-hour episode. So we're going to cut this one short here, and we'll have you back. We'll talk about all a uh, few other questions on, on our next uh, another episode. Does that sound good to you? Absolutely. really appreciate it. Thanks, Kevin. Yep. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you. A special thanks to our guest on today's show, Kevin Cry, Waterfowl Program Leader for the State of Texas, Texas Parks and Wildlife Department. Also thank my my, my co-host, Chris Jennings, for joining us here on this podcast. And as always, our producer, Clayton Baird, the Electron Warrior, for the great job that he does getting these podcasts out to you. And our listeners, as always, we thank you for spending your time with us. We thank you for your passion, support, and commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation.